Thanks. Thanks, Adam. Hey, um, a couple things I just want to bring you up to speed on before we go in. First of all, I know many of you are following along with our devotional series that we've been doing as a part of our approach to Easter through Lent, and the next week's installment are out in the lobby for you to take. And um, we've already heard a lot of feedback from folks that they're really enjoying it and being um, challenged by it and taking some next steps with it, so that's always great stuff to hear. And, you know, the theme really is, comes out of Mark chapter 13, which we're going to get to in another week or two, where Jesus tells his disciples, said, you know, the gospel's got to be proclaimed to the whole world. So when they grab you and drag you before the courts, don't worry about what you're going to say, because you're going to be given those words at those moments, so just say it. And we've been looking at a series entitled, Don't Worry, Just Say It. And we've been trying to lay out what it is that God has already given us to share with the world that can actually lead to redemption. Uh, the second thing I want to make you aware of is um, out in the lobby, there are um, some, some sheets that we put out with some information. You'll notice in your bulletins that we have called for a special call business meeting two weeks from today. Our family rules or our bylaws, church bylaws, call for us to give a two-week notice before we have a special call business meeting. This meeting is being called for one purpose. It only will have one agenda item. And that is to act on the recommendation of our Children's Ministry Search Committee, uh, with, which has, and their recommendation has the support of our elders, to call Jay Tilly, James Tilly, as you're going to see on his resume that's out there, Jay Tilly, as our next children's minister. Uh, Jay uh, is currently the pastor of the Christ Baptist Church in Worcester, and he's married. They have six children, and they have just recently moved to Winchenden. And so um, that recommendation will be coming up. So that'll be two weeks from tonight at 6 o'clock, and we'd really love for you to get that on your agenda. And like I said, there's information out there, not only a copy of Jay's resume, there's a copy of what the business meeting will look like, kind of an agenda, and then there's also a copy of the position description if you'd like to be a part of that. So, hey, and just one other word. Um, When we do the baptism on April the 20th, the night before Easter, um, we're going to have a Gahanian church that's going to come join us. They have a couple of people to baptize. They're right up the street from us on Route 12 in Lemonster. So one of the miracles I'm praying for is that they'll actually arrive on time because that's not one of their strong, strong, strong suits. But uh, we'll keep the water hot as long as we need to. But, uh, so that'll be on the night of the 20th. So get that on your calendar to come join us for that evening. Hey, let me just share with a brief word of prayer, and then we'll dig in for our word for today. God, I, I, I'm grateful that you are a God who moves. And, and, and Father, you can do that at any moment, and you often do. And this right now is one of those moments. You know, Father, uh, you've already taught us from the Gospel of Mark as we've worked our way through it, that the impact that your truth has in our lives is really dependent upon how receptive we are to it. Father, I pray in these moments that we prepare for you to share with us your truth. You lead us to pull the weeds out, the thistles that are going to choke the truth. We dig out the rocks that create the shallow soil. And Father, we'd prep the soil, sinking the, the hoe deep into the soil of our lives so that your truth can take great root and produce an incredible, indescribable harvest of 30, 60, 100 fold. Father, I do pray for clarity in my words. But Father, more than anything else, I pray for us to be receptive to the word that you share with us. For I prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want, I want to start out this morning with asking you to kind of adopt a mindset and just think about something for a minute, right? I want you to th- imagine that you are a citizen of the first century city of Rome, the first century AD, and you live in Rome, and Rome is, you know, and so you are a member of the greatest city and the greatest empire the world has ever known. Your, your, your influence extends from Spain to the edges of the Far East. It, it, it reaches to Northern Europe and down into Africa. And, and you are the greatest city nation the world has ever known. You are the greatest empire the world has ever known. You have brought prosperity. You have brought peace. You have brought law to all of the world. And, 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 and so you've had this tremendous influence, and you are a resident of the city of Rome, and you are a citizen of Rome, the greatest nation the world has ever the nation favored by the gods to rise up in the world. And you really don't have to work for a living. The government just provides you a livelihood. In fact, they establish these, these elaborate games so you can go and be entertained instead of working. And so your life is just incredible, right? And, and, and you are in a place where you don't really need anything because you are a part of the nation of Rome. You are a Roman citizen. And in comes this crude, crudely educated guy who's from one of the most unruly provinces of your vast empire, a place where there's just always problems and people creating issues and that kind of stuff. And, and this guy comes into your city and he's proclaimed to you that he knows the way of eternal life and nobody else does. In fact, he's telling you, what he wants to sell you is that your duly appointed governor of this province acting in the power invested in him by the emperor himself in protection of the empire that's brought peace to the whole world, executed this guy because his own leadership rejected him, but he wants you to believe that he's the son of God and he's the only way to get to heaven. Now, what would you say to that? We're talking about Peter, right? Peter has made his way to Rome. We know that's where he was executed. He's got Mark, the author of our gospel that we've been working through as his protege, kind of trailing along behind. They walk into the city of Rome, and they start to try to tell people that Jesus, who was executed by the governor of Judea, a guy by the name of Pilate, who was rejected, the only reason he executed Jesus was to keep the peace, because Jesus was an insurrectionist that the that the leaders of the people of Judea said, this guy's got to go. And now you're trying to tell me that this criminal is the one that I'm supposed to believe is the son of God, and he's the only way to get to heaven. And so Peter, and through from Peter, Mark, finds himself in a place that we often find ourselves as believers in the 21st century. He has to make an apology for the faith to the first century world. He's got to make a case that the way that the world sees it is wrong, and the truth that he is presenting is actually the real truth. And Mark's passion, 
likes Peter's passion, is that they, he wants everybody to come to understand and believe and be connected to what he has come to know and experience, is that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, and that the good news is that salvation is available in his name. So how do you do that? Well, in the text that we find today in the Gospel of Mark, you see some of the ways where Mark rises up, lifts up the experiences that that Peter probably lifted up that served as an explanation to the Roman world as to why it was that an individual who was executed by a Roman governor was actually the Son of God. So I'd love for you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. So our, our agenda all these months as we've been working through the gospel of Mark and we're about ready to come into our final month has been to, one, see, first of all, seek understanding from the word. If you walk out of here this morning and the only thing that takes place is that you understand the Bible better than when you showed up, that's all right. But after we've had understanding, we've also been trying to find meaning. What does this mean to us? And so we're going to try to do those two things together today. But in order for us to understand the role that these stories play, and they're not they're stories because they're accounts of what actually happened, they play a, an incredibly important role in the preaching of Peter to the city of Rome because they are the basis from which he can say, even though he was rejected by the Jewish leaders and executed by your governor, he really is the son of God. And it's only in his name that you can live for eternity. I'm going to start with verse 22 of chapter 11. And we're going to leave verses 22 through 26. We're going to read them and just kind of set them aside. And I'm going to come back to them at the end. It's a teaching on prayer. It's a powerful teaching on prayer. It's also taught in the other gospels in a lot of different contexts. So I, I feel comfortable kind of setting it aside, not taking it, because there's a lot of meat for us to pull out of there for our own meaning. But then we'll walk through the three major events that take place. Is it a part of our text this morning? So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's fine. We have Bibles underneath the chairs, or should be one close by. And uh, you'll find our text today on page 857. In fact, I think it's the last verse on, on that page, and you'll quickly turn over to the next one. And, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Or if you have a Bible and you say, when I read I don't understand it, but I really like the translation you have in your, in your chairs a little bit better, we'd love to give you one just to sample. You can just take it with you. We, we, we keep plenty of those around. So follow along with me. I'll resist the temptation to make a lot of comments until we come back through. So Jesus replied to them, verse 22, chapter 11, have faith in God. Man, I I could stop right there and we could just have a one-sentence basis for a sermon, but I'm going to keep moving. It says, I assure you, some of your translations are going to say truly, truly. In other words, this is wake up, pay attention, underline this, memorize this. This is important. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and he doesn't doubt, doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them, and you'll have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your wrongdoing. 
And they came again to Jerusalem. So we think this is Tuesday of the last week of Christ, right? Palm Sunday happens on a Sunday, the triumphal entry. Then there's Monday, and now we think it's Tuesday, right? They come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they came up and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to come into the temple complex and throw out all the merchants and turn over all the tables and do all? Who gave you the right to demonstrate or proclaim that you're the Messiah by coming down the, the hill from, from the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey like you're, you, you know, you're the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9? Who gave you the right or the authority to do these things? And Jesus says, I'll ask you one question. Then answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Was John's baptism, that's a reference to John the Baptist, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. (laughs) So they began to argue among themselves. Give us a second. Off in a corner. If we say he's from heaven, he's going to say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say he's from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that he was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus by saying, you know, we don't know. We don't know. They were politically correct, right, and said, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Seems like Jesus is being a little cutesy there, but we're going to come back to that, right? So then he begins to speak to them in a parable. Still got the chief priests, the scribes, the elders there, right? He says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and he built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard, from the farmers. In other words, it's time to pay the rent, right? So give me a part of the harvest. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them. And they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. And they beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send a beloved son. So finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, this is the heir, right? This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Believe it or not, the way the law read was that if a landowner did not have any heirs, then the occupants got to take the land. That would seem like quite an incentive to murder your landlord and all of his relatives. But, I, you know, that's just the way the law was, right? So anyways, they said, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and we'll, the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, they killed him, they threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Right? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He said, he's going to come. He's going to destroy the farmers. He's going to give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. 
Because they knew that they, he said these, this parable against them. They, they were looking for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and they went away. So then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians him to trap, to trap him by what he said. Now, we, we, we can't really get the significance of that but because we're so far removed from that culture. But imagine that the progressives and the Tea Party group got together to go out and entrap Jesus. That's what's going on here. The Herodians and the Pharisees, right? They're on opposite end of the... They hate each other, right? But they're getting together to try to trap Jesus. So out they come, and they think they're going to ask him a question that there is no right answer to. Right? Teacher, we know you're truthful. You defer to no one. You don't show partiality. But you always treat truthfully the way of God. In other words, don't chicken out on us now. Because we've got the question that you just can't wiggle out of. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay? Shouldn't we pay? Right? Remember, you always teach the truth. You always state it just the way it is. Don't get, you know, don't play. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the reason they know this is that because part of them, the Herodians and others, felt like, yeah, we should. And others, they just hated it, the Pharisees. So no matter what answer he gave, half of the people were going to hate him. Right? So this is, a, this is a no-lose for them. It doesn't matter what answer he gives. They're going to divide the people. They're going to swoop in, pick up Jesus, have him executed. Life's going to be, it's going to go on, right? So should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So bring me one of the coins, Right? <laughs> And he says to me, so they brought one. He says, Who image, whose image is this? What inscriptions on the other side? And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus told them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, let's try to understand the text a little bit and then we'll try to draw out some meaning for us. Now, each one of these encounters that we're looking at, these main stories, play a pivotal role in the apology for Christ that Peter was trying to make to the citizens of Rome. And here's his first thing. He says, I know you look at it in your Roman governor at the request of the religious leaders of our country, the Jews, right? They asked him to execute Jesus. So you're saying there's no way he could be God. And this is Peter's response. Those guys were spiritually incompetent. When Jesus asked them, well, is John the Baptist? Did, did he do his ministry by God's power or was it just man's power? And guess what they said? We're too stupid to know the difference. We don't know. And so if you want to look at them and say, these are the guys that you should trust to make an evaluation of Jesus, <laughs> that's why Jesus didn't tell them. Now, I think there's an element in there where Jesus doesn't really ever want to remove the step of faith from the journey of becoming a follower of Christ. I think there's a lot of us sometimes who say, God, just, just prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, right, that you're real. We, we, want, we want all the step of faith to be removed and just be just as real as if I step on this step, it's just going to hold me, right? And God said, I don't want to do that. So Jesus refuses to give an answer. But the overarching thing is these guys are spiritually incompetent. In fact, there's actually more to the story than just that. Not only are they spiritually incompetent, but when you look 
at the history of the people of God, they had a history of rejecting those whom God sent. This whole parable of the vineyard, right? Is First of all, this is a very likely scenario, right? A guy would, as an investment, buy land, set up a vineyard. He'd build a fence around it to keep the animals out and keep people from sneaking through. And, and usually the fence was built out of, a, out, out of a type of bush, if you will, and it was very difficult to get through. And then you build a watchtower so you could see over the whole property and keep an eye on everything. And then, you know, you'd have the wine press. So that kind of, he'd build it, and then he'd get a bunch of people to operate it. And he just wants to get his profit out of it. You know, you, you guys can make some money, but I want my share. And on an annual basis, he'd be sending these guys back and saying, where's my part of the harvest? Right? But Jesus is using this parable, and the leaders are clear enough to get it. He said, this is what the people of God have done to the prophets of God forever. God's the owner of the vineyard, right? He gave it to the people of God to labor in. And every time he sends a prophet back to remind them that they need to pay some of the rent back to him, what do they do? They beat him up, throw him over the fence. They hit him on the head, toss him over the fence. They kill him, toss him over the fence. And prophetically, he's gonna, they're going to do the same thing to, their, to the son of God. They're going to kill him and throw him over the fence. And so... So, this is, so the fact that they're rejecting somebody who really is of God is nothing new to the people of God. The third thing that really comes out of this is that even though, so this little passage in here in verse 10 and 11, where he says that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the Jews always understood it to mean that that was them, right? We're just this tiny little nation, that God, but God has chosen to rise us up and to give us this prominence or whatever. The early church, led by God, clearly understood that this was Jesus. And so Mark is also making this case to them to say, hey, listen, not only was you can see that the people of God have always done that, and these guys who were making these decisions in Jerusalem were spiritually incompetent, but actually God actually chose the one that he reje- they rejected, Jesus Christ. Right? Because he is the capstone. Well, then they say, well, you know, what, what about, you know, you know we're, we're always having trouble with it. So you have this whole teaching about the taxes, right? They're, they're trying to divide the people so Jesus doesn't have enough influence behind them that he's not untouchable anymore, and then they want to swoop in and just take him. So they ask the question, should we pay taxes or not? And believe it or not, in that, those days, they believed that because the emperor's picture was on the coin, the money was always his. It was never your money, it was always his money. You were just borrowing it, right? And so when the Romans took over after Herod the Great died, one of the things that they implemented was the fact that in order to live in the land, you've got to pay a tax every year. It's like an excise tax on people, right? You know, you have to pay an excise tax on your car just to have it, right, every year. Well, in, in order to be alive and live in the land, you had to pay an excise tax. And it was about a day's wage. That's what a denarius was, day's wage of a laborer. So, you know, today, eh, about 100 bucks, right? So in order to be able to live in the land, everybody had to pay 100 bucks every year. And, and the Herodians, they, they wanted their kingdom back, right? And the way to get it was through the Romans. So they were in favor of it. Sadducees, the Pharisees, they hated it, right? Because they thought it was an idol, right? He's got his picture on it, right? They hated it. So there's just all this division. And, and the whole teaching here at the end, and there's powerful truth for us we're going to look at in a minute, where Jesus says, you know, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
and then give to God, render to God the things that are God. There's a powerful spiritual truth there for us. But the message to the first century Romans was Jesus was no revolutionary. He wasn't trying to overthrow the Roman government and set up, you know, his own powerful, you know, empire in that part of the world. He wasn't an insurrectionist. He was a savior who gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's on those truths that that they're able to hold up and say, what your conception of Jesus is isn't wrong because the conception that we have is that Jesus really is the Son of God. And so you have a first century apology that speaks a lot of truth to us today in the 21st century as well. But there's a passage of Scripture we haven't looked at yet, at least in depth, and that's verses 22 through 26. And I want to quickly read these. I know our time is getting away, but there's some great stuff for us to get here, right? So Jesus is teaching, you know, this is a a teaching that's found in other contexts and other gospels. In other words, this is something Jesus taught in different places. But here in Mark, he's just cleansed the temple because the worship of God is corrupt, right? And he's cleansed the temple. And then he's cursed the fig tree that's withered because it is representative of the fact that Israel looks to spiritual part, but it's really fruitless, right? And so in the midst of that, they're saying, well, if, if, if being a part of the People of God isn't the way to connect with God. And worshiping God in his house isn't the place to do that. How do we really connect with God? And Jesus says, by faith and by prayer. So have faith in God. He says, and when you pray, <laughs> you know, I tell you, I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, all the things you pray and ask for... Believe that you have received them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if, anything, if, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, here's a, this, is, this is one of the most difficult passages about prayer for us to understand, right? And we have that faith in God part, we get that up front. That's challenging enough. But for the most part, I mean, how, how many of you, when you really believe it, you get everything you pray for? You know, it, it, listen, right? If, if, th- if this was the kind of thing that happened, right? All I got to do is really, 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 really believe it is pray about it. And I get everything. I mean, there would not be a single used car in our parking lot, right? Everybody would have a brand new car or they'd have an old antique because that's what they wanted, right? I mean, one or the other, right? You know, that kind of idea. And you know what? The Powerball would never grow any big because somebody would win it every week, right? You know, it just, it just would. Because it, as long as you really, 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 really believe it, you're going to get it, right? That's going to look really great on Facebook, me doing it, isn't it? But so what do we do with this passage, right? Because this is just not our experience, right? There's some things, you know, that we, we, and we, we, we just pray fervently for God to do and it's, et cetera, and, and, and it just doesn't happen. And sometimes it's really, really painful. It can be related to health issues or, or death issues, all kinds of things. It can be really hard. How, how does this all work? What does this mean? And so one of our dangers is that we, is that we oversell this passage of Scripture, where we, quote-unquote, just take it at face value and say, as long as I really want it and I really believe it and I put everything around it, God's going to give me everything that I want. And that can be really dangerous spiritually. I, I think I've told this story before here, but when I was in college in, in Maine, I went to a small little church just off campus. And, and there was a, a woman in the church who had a, had a very sweet, but in some ways a very simple faith. And 
and she was active and connected, all kind of great stuff. But she had like a 20, 21-year-old son. And she used verses like this to convince him to pray about something that he needed. He, he was coming into the summer, just getting out of high school kind of thing, and he really needed transportation. And so she led him to pray very specifically about the motorcycle that he would get. So she, she led him to pray to get it specifically on one day, exactly what color he wanted, what make he wanted, what size he wanted. He was being very specific, and he prayed fervently for months for God to make that come true. And guess what happened? It didn't come true. The day came and went, and that bike never showed up. That's a great tragedy in and of itself, being a prior motorcycle owner, but that's a different story. The whole point is that, you know, it's because that's not the way it works. But on the other side, we have a tendency to undersell this as well. One of the versions that the the church has taken along the way is to say that this promise was only for the 12 apostles. And once they died, it went. And I don't think that's true either. And you don't see that in this text either. But what you do see is a couple of things that we really need to get our hands on and admit the rest of it. We need understanding from God, and, and we may not figure it out until we get to be in God's presence for eternity. But one is, is the vital importance of prayer in our journey. There, there is no doubt that what Jesus is saying here, you want to see God's stuff happen in your life, and you want God's stuff to happen in your orbit, you better be a person of prayer. And the vast majority of us, myself included, would say, I need to be praying more. And we need to hear that word today. It's part of the meaning that comes to us is that we need to pray more. We need to be more fervent and committed and focused on. I think a lot of this believe in your heart, that kind of thing, is, I, I think a lot of it is related to the idea that we recognize that we are really dependent on God for that fulfillment. It's not just like, all right, well, let's just send this prayer off and then we'll try to go do everything else we can to make it happen. But if we realize and we recognize that piece and we're, we're dependent and we're connected and, and really praying for God to deliver. I also think these things are really connected to the mission of God. I don't think it's just carte blanche everything, right? You know, boy, I'm going to pray really hard because I want lobster and and steak for dinner tonight. I I don't think that's what God means here, right? I think this idea of moving this mountain is is, it's the the mountain of difficulty that comes from extending the kingdom throughout the world, right? And and when you, I don't know if you you noticed this in the text yet. Let me highlight it. So we have now this, this privilege to our faith in God to really pray. But with that comes the responsibility of now that the vineyard has been taken away from others, and it's been given to us in Jesus Christ. Do you notice that over in chapter 12, verse 10? He will come, and he's going to destroy the vineyard, the farmers, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. Guess who the other is? Us as the church. The favored people of God shifted from the Jews to the church. And the responsibility that was given to Abraham to be a blessing to the nation is now passed to us. We have the privilege of being the favored people of God, to being the people who can pray and see God answer prayer and connect it. But at the same time, we have the responsibility to move the mountain of challenge of being a blessing to the nations. And when you and I get our hearts and minds about really praying for those things and really believing that that's what God wants to do, then the types of stuff that only God can do begin to really show up. 
a couple more little points I want you to see. And I, verse 25 of chapter 11 is profound for a lot of us this morning. And if you're standing and praying, and you remember you have something against somebody else, you need to go up and get up and go and forgive them and then come back, right? And you need to forgive their, their wrongdoing, your wrongdoing. And here, here's the truth that comes out, right? We're, we're praying for God to unleash his grace in our lives, to compel us into the future that he has for us. But there's an anchor that's holding us to our past. And that's called unforgiveness. We're, we're praying for God to do all the stuff to move this mountain. We're praying for him to launch us into the future that he has for us through his grace. And yet we're tied down to our past because we refuse to forgive ourselves. or We refuse to give other pe- forgive other people. And Jesus said, man, you've you got to let that go. You, you, God has forgiven you. He has freed you from your past. And you need to embrace that forgiveness by releasing yourself from that past by granting forgiveness to others. So you can be launched forward, right, into who he is. And that's a powerful word for a lot of us in this room today, whether it's from our own journey, the pain and destruction we brought in ourselves, or something that we've experienced at the hands of others. One last truth here, and I want to wrap up with this. This teaching of Jesus to say, render or give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's is this Incredible challenge, but also truth that you and I can be people who live in the world, but we really can be the people of God in the world. You and I know that everyday life happens, right? We, we've got to pay the rent, right? We've got we to gotta pay the tax, and we have to render under Caesar, give under Caesar the things that it takes. But in the midst of that, it is possible for you and I to truly give to God what we should be giving to God. And that's really where I want us to conclude this service, our, our thoughts today about this is, what is it from God? What is it that you need to be giving to God this morning? You know, and sometimes, well, sometimes it's, it's simply, we know. It's, it's something very, it's not, it's not like way at the top of the tree and we've got to get a ladder and climb and we can, it, it, it's low-hanging fruit in our lives. You say, you know what, this is what I need to deal with. This is what I need to give to God this morning. And I want to challenge and invite you to do just that today. I just want to, let's bow in prayer for just a moment. But I want to give you a moment to let the Spirit just kind of search your heart a little bit and draw something to mind. When you think about your journey, what is it that you already know about God that you need to give back to God, that you need to start doing? Maybe you do need to release your past, and that's what you need to give. Maybe you do need to grant forgiveness. For others, you, you say, you know, I, I really do need to take the step of faith. For others, it might be to say, I need to, I need to confess my faith publicly through the act of baptism. Had a woman come up to me between services and say, I've been coming here for six years, and I need to become a member. That's what I need to give back. I need to commit and be a part of the team that helps this church show. What is it you need to give back to God? Take just a moment and pray through that on your own.
Father, today we have asked of you. We believe it in our hearts. We know it's a grace that you want to give to us. And so, Father, we look for you to fulfill your promise that we would have it. God, as we give ourselves to you today, we receive what you have for us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.